All right. Good to see you this evening. Uh, we, do, we do have visitors here this evening. Thank you for being here. Uh, our goal tonight is going to be to understand the, the majority of what the book of Romans is about. We're going to be trying to work our way through the entire book of Romans uh, in hopefully less than 40 minutes. I'm, I'm really trying to keep these down below 40 minutes. So uh, we'll be trying to do that tonight. Romans is definitely one of those books that will be a challenge, but uh, I tried to work really hard to summarize and condense this to, to make that possible. Romans is a book that I absolutely love. Uh, it's, it's a book that I fell in love with as I started struggling to understand salvation and started struggling to understand uh, what, what it is that the, the relationship that I have with God is like. How does this relationship work? Um, and, and so as I opened up the book of Romans, I just saw all of these deep statements that were beyond me, and I just had to understand them. Um, and so I, I spent about three years trying to understand the book of Romans. I think I've said that here before. Um, and just working hard at this book to make sure that I, I grasp some of the more deep concepts. And there's some things in here that I probably don't have perfectly understood, but I think I understand a lot of it as I've studied it a lot. But uh, as we study this book together, uh, one thing that I think you'll see is, uh, as we study it is, this is a book that's all about God. Um, it, it has a lot to say for us, to help us. Um, but in order to help us, he really wants to teach us who God is and what God has done for us. And, and then he shows us how we should respond uh, because of what God has done. You open up the book of Romans uh, to the first chapter and look at the introduction. The first six verses says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And that, that part of the introduction, just verse 1, sounds very typical of Paul, introducing himself and who he is. This is the way a Roman letter would have typically been written. But then he says uh, he had been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is not typical. The typical part is him introducing himself, and then he goes into this long explanation about the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? And he, he brings up the fact that this is the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets. And he starts talking about the promise of the gospel uh, in David's lineage, Jesus the Messiah would come from David's lineage and, uh, and then declaring him to be the son of God. A passage in Daniel talks about him being the son of man, but him being also uh, the one who is the son of God. Uh, as, as you look at this, you see Paul is immediately describing the gospel that Jesus uh, was resurrected from the dead to bring about our salvation. Why? 
Why does he tell us the gospel so soon in this letter? Why is he jumping straight to the idea that God has delivered the promised gospel to us at the very beginning of the letter? What well, just sets, sets the stage for the whole book? Okay? This letter is, is trying to show us, as Paul is showing here, look at God's faithfulness to his promises. God has been faithful in in delivering the things that he has promised to us by sending us Jesus Christ. And what does that tell us about God? Well, he is righteous. He delivers what he promises. He, He gives what he says he will give. There's no deception. There's no lying in him. And so Paul wants us to understand from the very beginning that The gospel is the fulfillment of the promises of God, which is what we've been studying about all throughout this year and will continue studying. And that is a display of God's righteousness. The word righteousness is of of God particularly is a theme throughout this entire book. Uh, If you were to just read through the letter of Romans, you're going to, if you, if you underline the most repeated phrase, you're going to find righteousness of God just starts standing out to you. It's constantly being talked about. 36 times in this book, the word righteousness is used, and 12 times the word righteous is used. So righteousness and righteous is, is a very common word throughout this book, and much of the discussion revolves around God's righteousness in the things that he has done. God has been right. God has been in the right. God has done what is good and approved. Uh, it is, it is, there's nothing wrong with what he's done. He is showing himself perfectly righteous. Well, why does Paul want to help the Romans understand God's righteousness? Why is that such a big deal for Christians to know that God is so righteous? Well, he even tells us that in this introduction. Look at verse 5. It says through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Whenever he says this, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, you're you're getting a little glimpse into the reason why. Paul wants to explain how righteous God is so that we would be motivated to obey him and to put our faith and our trust in him as we live this life. And so as he says that, he says, my apostleship is all about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name so that everybody can see how good and righteous he is through our obedient faith. And he says, I want all the nations to see that. Why does he tell us a lot about God's righteousness? Because he wants to create in us obedient faithfulness, obedient faith, righteousness. And so here are the two key themes, two key threads that we'll see as we study through the book of Romans tonight. First of all, the the idea that God is perfectly righteous and good in everything he does. There's nothing wrong with anything that he ever does. And second, that the good things that he has done should create in us obedient, faithful hearts. That we should develop the righteousness 
that's like God as we respond to his righteousness. We should become more righteous. We should become more like him. In fact, verse 17, which uh, is what many say is the key verse in all of it. We'll read 16 and 17 of chapter 1. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, there's that idea, from faith to faith, or from faith for faith, depending on your translation, as it is written, listen to this, the righteous shall live by faith. So you have the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And then here's another, the second theme. The righteous will live by faith. That that we will be obedient and faithful. We will be righteous by faith. And he goes ahead and tells you at the very beginning of this, he kind of gives you the bottom line up front that righteousness is through faith. And our faithfulness, uh, our desire to put faith, our our willingness to put faith in God is going to result in life and righteousness. Uh, so, this is the key to the book. In the very introduction, this is what we're all going to be talking about. You got all that, then you know what the book of Romans is about, but if you study the book of Romans before, you know there's a whole lot more here than just that. Um, but if you see those ideas, it'll be easier to see and understand what he's doing as you study the rest of the book. Okay. So, first of all, with this idea that it's all about God's righteousness and then us becoming obedient uh, and having faith in God, uh, what we see is Paul starting to develop an argument, uh, 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 an explanation of what has happened and why we should believe that God is righteous and why we should be obedient. And the first thing he says is, we are not righteous. We are totally unrighteous. Uh, in comparison to God. And he does this, uh, first of all, by pointing out that we suppress the truth. And by we, in this case, I would say he's primarily talking about the Gentiles. In the rest of chapter 1, he talks about the sinfulness of the Gentiles who worship and serve the created instead of the creator. They suppress the truth. They don't want anything to do with the truth. They just follow their own ways and do their own things. They they are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit uh, and maliciousness and gossips and slanderers, haters of God. All this evil stuff has come out of them because... They suppress the truth. We are unrighteous as Gentiles. In chapter 2, he talks about the unrighteousness of the Jews. The Jews don't suppress the truth. They accept the truth. They preach the truth. They just don't keep the truth. They tell people, uh, you can't commit adultery, and then they commit adultery. They tell people not to lie, and then they lie. They tell people not to steal, and then they steal. They just justify it by doing it in a way uh, that, that they think is okay, uh, when in reality they are just as disobedient and just as rebellious and just as unrighteous as everybody else. And then in chapter 3, he condemns everybody together and says there is no one righteous, no, not one. Not a single person on earth can stand before the judgment seat of God and declare that they are perfectly righteous in God's sight. It's just not possible. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But 
God, in his righteousness, has revealed his righteousness to us through the law, but also through Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus for our sins shows us how righteous and good God is, that he would give his son to be the atoning sacrifice that would cover our sins, even though we are completely unrighteous and unworthy. And we can receive that sacrifice by, having, by putting our faith in him and submitting our lives to him. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and that, that is the ultimate demonstration of righteousness, that God would be willing to do what we can't do. Even though he is righteous and we are unrighteous and we're unworthy, he was willing to do what we couldn't do to, to bring us out of the depths of unrighteousness, to forgive us of all of our sins. Well, if all of our sins are forgiven, does that make us righteous? Like God is righteous? Once we're clean, does that mean that we're righteous? Well, being righteous is more so about doing what is good, doing what is right. And having those past sins forgiven and an avenue for forgiveness may not necessarily mean that we are good or that we are right. So can we really become righteous? Is that really possible? Is it that God is you know, cleansing us of all of our sins and then he's just going to say, you know what, you're righteous and that's good and that's it? Uh, or is there an expectation for us to become righteous through some means? Well, we failed miserably in the past. How are we going to be righteous in the future? How are we going to change and become what God ultimately created us to be, his image bearers? who represent him and glorify his name among all the nations. Well, Paul tells us in chapter 4 how it is that we are going to become righteous. And it's not because we become great workers who are uh, able to do everything right all the time and we all of a sudden rose out of the waters of baptism. We do everything just like God would do it. No, we find out that Faith is counted as righteousness. Works aren't righteous because our works are flawed. But God looks at faith and he counts it as righteousness. Read with me chapter 4 verse 20 beginning. It says uh, about Abraham. He's been talking about Abraham being justified because he had faith. Not because he did a bunch of works that showed that he was righteous uh, before God. But he found favor with God through faith. It says in verse 20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now we see that there's an opportunity given to us. The, the, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ really just opens the door for us to get out of this system of having to 
keep the law in order to be righteous enough, in order to stand before God and enter into heaven. And now there's a different way, a different system that's set up where we are counted as righteous if we have the faith of Abraham, if we believe like Abraham did, and if we are willing to submit to whatever it is God has called us to do with faith like Abraham. Faith is counted as righteousness. You look at faith and you might think, well, you just believe that God will do what he says? How is that? better than someone who abstains from sexual morality all their life. Well, in God's eyes, he finds favor with the one who believes, and they made a sin and mistake in the past, but they believe God will forgive it, and they put their faith and their trust in God, and they're willing to submit to God, and maybe as a result, they're willing to do even more than abstain from sexual morality all their life. So God finds some... Uh, something about faith he finds favor in. And he's decided to count that as righteousness. We can be forgiven of our sins through Jesus Christ and we can become, we can be called righteous before God when we have faith and when we submit our lives to God. Chapter 5 tells us that God's grace, uh, again, he says, has made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. We were enemies of God, and now he has made it possible for us to be counted as righteous. He says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So it's kind of a bookend. In, in chapter 3 at the end, he says, God has saved you by the, the sacrifice of Jesus. And then he says... And through faith, you can be counted as righteous as you live your life from this point forward. You're going to make mistakes and you're going, to, you're going to fail to uphold the law and be perfectly righteous as the law commands you to be righteous. But you're not under the law system anymore. God counts your faith as righteous. And you can be sure that if he was willing to save you when you were his enemy, that he will save you when he returns. Now that you are putting your faith and your trust in him. And so this is the way he reveals to us uh, how he's going to heal our unrighteousness. Adam came and sinned and then death came into the world. But Jesus came and did what was good and righteous. And as a result, he gave us the free gift of righteousness through his sacrifice and his reign in heaven with love and compassion toward those who have faith. This actually transitions us in chapter 5, uh, verse 17. He says, if by one man's trespass, speaking about Adam, uh, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
This is a, an important text. We're going to take just a second to think about what's being said here because this is helping us understand what chapters 6, 7, and 8 are going to be about. Okay? So on one hand, you've got Adam who sinned, and as a result, death reigned. Because we all sinned like Adam, we had commands from God, we had our consciences telling us obviously what's right or wrong, we went against it, we died, death reigned because of sin in our lives. But now he says, look at it again, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, so he says much more will we who receive grace reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There's all this descriptive words before that reign in life. Do you understand that this is telling us through Jesus, we reign in life. We reign in life. So if you, if you start looking at all the different translations, I, was, I just whenever I saw this, it's like, that can't be right. There, there's, we don't reign. What is that? If you look at all the different, it says the same thing. We who have received the gift of salvation, the righteousness, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through Jesus. What does it mean to reign? Death reigned. Death was in control. Sin was in control. Now we reign. We are in control. Look at verse 21. He says, uh, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, what he says here is, First of all, verse 20, the law came to increase trespass, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As you study this, what you're going to see is God has set us free from slavery to sin, bondage to sin. Sin was our ruler. Death was our ruler that was reigning over us. Set us free so that now we reign, we rule, we decide who we're going to serve at this point. We are free from the bondage that we were born under because we ended up sinning and fell short of the glory of God. We were bound to that. We could not get ourselves out of that. We were stuck in that situation. But God removed us from that situation and set us in a point where we are free to choose. We can choose to serve sin again, or, he says, grace might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. So here's your choices. You're free. Once you receive the gift of God through Jesus Christ, once you receive the blessing of forgiveness and salvation, you're free. You can choose to go back into sin that leads to death, or you can choose to enter into the grace and, and reign in grace, through righteousness that leads to eternal life. That just sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? <laughs> reign in grace, reign, uh, having gr grace reign. Uh, in other words, you're putting grace on the throne instead of putting sin on the throne. And so what Paul does in chapters 6, 7, and 8 is explain this idea. 
okay? And we don't have enough time to go into a lot of detail about this. This is like the depths of theology <laughs> in chapters 6, 7, and 8. But it's really not that hard to understand. Once you understand this concept that we are free to choose to either serve sin or to serve God and, and let grace reign in our lives and, and let it be the, the ruler, uh, which means let Jesus, let the righteous God who, who we serve be our Lord and the decision maker in our life, the one we pursue in every decision. That's the decision that we have to make. Once you understand that, chapters 6, 7, and 8 makes so much sense. If you look at chapter 6, it tells us how could we continue to sin? After receiving such marvelous grace, after being set free from sin, how could we consider you to sin? That's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. Should we not give our bodies to God to serve Him and to be righteous after the great gift that He's given to us? In chapter 7, he says, we've been released from the law, uh, which is basically saying, at this point, we're under grace our sins are forgiven because of grace, not because of how good we are or how righteous we are, but because of grace. And because of that, we must choose to serve God. Under the law, we find that we're sinners. That's what chapter 7 tells us. Who are in need of grace and salvation. So if we go back to the life of sinning and trying to find righteousness through the law, we're just going to find ourselves in need of grace again. And we just need to move ourselves over to grace. And chapter 8 tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The law of sin and death, uh, the law of the Spirit has set you free from, in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. So I, I, I want to, you can feel it, I want to go in detail about this whole section. But that's my best summary to try to condense this as much as possible. Uh, we now have hope because of what Jesus has done to live uh, with grace on the throne of our heart, that everything we do is motivated by the grace that God has given us, and, and that all those sins are washed away, so now everything we do that is righteous and pursuing righteous is added to us as fruit. That's, that's the great thing about this. If you look at verse 13, he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, will be alive, will be bearing fruit for God, and, and there was nothing, no fruit being born as we were living for sin, but now we can bear fruit for God and we can glorify Him. And, and the last part of chapter 8 tells us because God has done all this for us, we have complete security and hope because of our faith in God who is righteous and good and able to save in everything we do. So you see how this is bringing the two ideas together. God is righteous, and because God has been so righteous and done all this for us, we should want to have an obedient faith that serves God. Well, that would be a fitting end to the book, but Paul doesn't end there. Uh, he wants to hit hard on this idea that God is righteous. So in chapter 9, he goes back to this idea, and he kind of he vindicates God uh, as though he's arguing with Jewish Christians who would say, well, if, if God forgives all these Gentiles through grace without making them keep the law, then God is not righteous. God is not good. Well, 
Paul goes back against them and tries to make it very clear that these Jews are just as unrighteous. And God is the one who is righteous, and he gets to choose the criteria by which he saves people. And the criteria he, he chose to save people is not law, it is faith. And these Jews who have been hypocritical and who have been harsh and, and, and not done the things of the law, even though they know the law, are just as lost as the Gentiles. And in chapter 10 he says they just refuse to believe. All they had to do was believe, and the word has gone out for them to hear, for them to believe, and they've refused to believe. In chapter 11, he says that God can still save those Jews. If they'll turn from their rebellion and their stubbornness, they can be grafted back in, just like the Gentiles who were wild have been grafted in through faith. These Jews who have been rebellious and stubborn as everybody else, even though they know the truth, can be grafted in again. And so the bottom line in this whole first section of the book, the first 11 chapters is really just one section laying out all of God's righteousness and our response in faith. The bottom line is that God is righteous in whatever choice he makes. And he has made the choice to count faith as righteousness because that's how gracious he is. Aren't we grateful that he's chosen that? <laughs> It's, it's attainable. We just need to make that belief, that real belief in God and what he has done and submit our lives to doing the things he's commanded us to do just like Abraham did. Abraham believed and so he left his land and went into that land that he did not know and he stayed there and he went back to it and he trusted in God all along the way. He was trusting in God. He, he wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes. But God found favor, Abraham found favor in God's sight because of his faith. And so then God made that the standard by which we all can be saved is through faith that obeys and listens and does the things that God wants us to do. Because grace is on the throne, God is on the throne of our lives, not sin and rebellion and stubbornness. In chapter 12, uh, you have a transition into applying God's righteousness in our own lives. Uh, he tells us that grace reigning is going to end up resulting in lives that are full of love and humility toward one another. This is what it looks like to live a life where grace is reigning. If sin is reigning, there's anger, there's malice, there's vengeance and strife. But if grace is reigning, we're sacrificially serving one another and loving one another in, in everything that we do. Chapter 13, he says, if grace is reigning, essentially, uh, we are submitting ourselves to the authorities and we're fulfilling the law by having love toward everybody. We're honoring and respecting everybody. In chapter 14, the weak are honoring and respecting the strong. The, those who have different opinions are honoring and respecting each other. The stronger, honoring and respecting the weak. It doesn't matter where you are or what your, your, your feelings or your conscience is. You're respecting one another. You're loving one another because grace is on the throne. Because the truth is we're not righteous. And we're not worthy of entering into the presence of God. But only by the grace of God we are able to do that. So as we look at other people, we don't have harsh judgments toward them. Grace is on our throne. Grace is the motivation behind everything we do. By the mercies of God, we are a living sacrifice for everyone else because he has given us great mercy 
we show mercy and love and respect to everybody else. And then he ends with the example of Jesus himself in chapter 15. Jesus is the righteousness of God on display with the way he lives, with the way he acts, his tolerance, his patience towards those who are sinners who come to him seeking to be reconciled to God and seeking to change their lives. Jesus is the example of love and patience and grace ruling for all of us to see. And he ends the book with a lot of concluding remarks. They last from chapter 15 all the way into chapter 16 because this is a letter written to a church where Paul has never been before. And he knows a lot of people there. And so he wants to let them know his plans and he wants to talk to them uh, who, who he knows and send them personal greetings in the book of Romans. Okay, so a lot of information. Uh, in that book, you drank from the fire hose. I hope that a lot of that makes sense to you. I hope that you've consumed that well. If you have questions about anything, I'd love to talk to you about them. I did not discuss all the details, and so there's a lot of things that are still there uh, for us to dis discuss in greater detail. But in the amount of time I'm given, that's the best I got. Um, what do we learn from the book of Romans? Imagine uh, being in a country where there is an emperor uh, who is over everything and he is oppressive and he is evil, he is deceptive, he cheats, he, he promises things that he never delivers and he, he, he works you to the bone and then he works you some more. Imagine living in that kind of an empire. That is not who God is. That is not who God is. Paul wants that to be so clear in our minds. God is perfectly righteous and good in all that he does as he reigns over his creation. He is allowing us all kinds of freedoms to make all kinds of choices, to do all kinds of things that are completely against his will. And he's doing everything he can to draw us to him so that we can see his love, for, our, his love for us and the benefit of loving him in response. He makes it possible for us, as unrighteous and evil and uh, as much of an enemy as we've made ourselves to God, he makes it possible for us to be reconciled to him, to join ourselves to him, to become righteous, to receive the gift of righteousness, not on the basis of how good we've always been, but on the basis of our, our heart's willingness to trust in him, to, to obey him, to submit to his rule in our lives. It's a wonderful grace that God has given to us. And it shows how, how righteous he is and how unrighteous we are. So if we want to apply the book of Romans to ourselves, we need to stop thinking about ourselves as being righteous because we're a good person. We're not righteous because we know the truth. <laughs> if we're not doing everything righteously, perfect, then we are not righteous, and we can't act like we are and look down on other people. Uh, faith is counted as righteousness. 
And so our focus should be on faith, putting our trust in God. What does his word say, and am I willing to submit to it with trust that he will deliver me the promises he's made me? I don't put faith in man and what man teaches me. I put faith in God and what God says. And I know that that faith will be counted as righteousness by the grace of God, will provide for me an eternal home in heaven. As I, as I put grace on the throne of my heart so that every decision I make is not about the pursuit of sin and passions and desires of this world, but it's about pleasing the one who has shown me so much grace that's not deserved. The one who wants me to be blessed, to be healed, <laughs> to be resurrected, to live with him forever. Is he worthy of our service? Yes, he is. We have to make that decision to receive his grace and to put him on the throne of our hearts, to take sin off the throne and submit to everything he's called us to do. There's not a single law that we can say, well, it's okay if I don't do that because I'm doing all these other things. No, I want to do them all. And I'm going to fail miserably, and I'm not going to be perfect at that. But I am putting to death the deeds of the body because grace is reigning in my heart. I want to please God. I want to do everything God wants me to do. I want to show the world how wonderful God is by being his image bearer. By, by being to the praise of his glory. This is what we're studying about in Ephesians. And if you're here tonight and you want that, you want to be to the praise of his glory, it starts with submitting your life to him to begin with. Confessing the, that you're a sinner, that you're unrighteous, and that you are not going to stand before God and be walking right into heaven because you're perfect like God. That ain't happening but that you need the blood of Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to provide for you that forgiveness that God has made available to you and that you now want to commit your life to God as he washes away all those sins in baptism. You're entering into a covenant with him where he will be your God and you will be his, part of his people and you can receive grace as you struggle to put to death the deeds of the body and live for God. If we can help you with that in any way, let us help you. Please come as we stand and as we sing.